Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. In the beginning, God made everything and it was good. Our fellowship with Him was very good. But our rebellion shattered every relationship. Our sin brought the curse of death. We can see that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Our world is broken. We long for our redemption. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into our world. He lived and died and rose again before returning to his Father's right hand. Soon, Jesus will return. Every eye will see him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb slain for sinners who overcame, and he will make all things new. Even so, come. Lord Jesus. I invite you to go in your Bibles with me. We're going to Revelation, the fourth chapter. Revelation chapter four. And in our study today, in the next few weeks, we'll be looking at the scene of heaven. Chapter four. In chapter 5. Now, let me ask you a question. I want you to think about this. How would you describe an indescribable scene to someone else? It's, so, it's the impossible. How would you describe an impossible to describe scene to someone else? Maybe a way for us to help kind of understand or get our minds around this could you explain easily a fireworks display to a toddler that had never seen fireworks? Could you easily explain a volcano to someone who has no eyesight and they have never seen a mountain? How much more difficult would it be for what we study today and in the coming weeks for God to condescend to us through the vision he's given to John the Apostle so that we can grasp a glimpse of heaven. Somewhere we've never been. Somewhere that is beyond all of our comprehension. And yet, the Lord has a way of just opening that window, opening that door, and giving to John in a way that we are able to get exactly what we need to get about the presence of the Lord. Many of us have heard of 
Maybe you've watched a movie or read a book or you've seen someone interviewed and they come often, they make claims about having a near-death experience or an after-death experience. And they say, oh, this is what I saw. And what do you say about that? Well, what do we say about that? What do we make of all of these testimonies that people have of these experiences? All we have to do, loved ones, is open our Bibles and compare them interpret them by the scriptures and say, okay, well, I'm going to go with what I see written in scripture through, and we'll look at some of them today. But in all things, we see a God who is sovereign over all. Now, I asked Stephen this week, I said, I want you to find the, some footage for me of heaven, and then I can just say, here, watch this clip. He failed at that assignment, okay? He didn't find anything for me. So we have nothing to watch except that we can open our Bibles and we can read in the Word of God, the living Word of God, the account that God gave through the revelation of Jesus Christ to his servant, John. So let's do this. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
Here we see in our text today a major transition. A major transition happens here in the book of Revelation. We are able to see not just an elevated throne, not just a higher throne, but in fact the highest throne. What did John encounter in his vision of heaven? This is what we want to unpack together. We want to learn what did he encounter What did he see in this vision? What was unveiled to him? What was disclosed to him when this door was opened to him? And the first aspect of this vision is we see that John encountered a sound of welcome. A sound of welcome. And this is an out-of-this-world invitation. He has no right to this. He does not deserve this. He shouldn't be allowed here. And yet God in His grace and in His mercy in Christ welcomes him. In this section, we see an outline of John's vision. Now there's faithful Christians and there's different understandings and interpretations of the events that are detailed here in the book of Revelation and we understand this. Genuine believers are united around this. Jesus Christ will return bodily. He will return physically, literally. And He will judge all iniquity and He will reign and rule forever. All believers confess that. Then there are intramural discussions that happen between when will these events take place and people study their Bibles and come to different understandings, different understandings and interpretations. And I will simply not engage in all of them, but I will give to you some of the various views and then I will preach what is my perspective and that doesn't separate me as a follower of Christ from someone who holds to a different timeline. Does that make sense? There's really four major interpretive approaches to Revelation. One is the historicist. Uh, This person would see the events of Revelation, particularly from here on out, from four to the end, as events that have already happened in history. Some who held to this, Martin Luther, John Calvin, other reformers, they were reading the, the book of Revelation and they were looking for where has this already happened. Another view is the preterist, Uh, This view understands the events of Revelation to have taken place during the time of John, even more specific, that it happened during John's uh, lifetime. The idealist interprets Revelation as largely poetical, symbolic, and spiritual in nature rather than than literal. So they're, they're reading these events, and we get to the beast, and we get to the bulls, and we get to all these judgments, and they're saying, well, that, that's not real, that's not literal, it's figurative or spiritual, it's a symbol. And then there's this view which I hold to, and that's the futurist understands the events of Revelation 1-3 to to have occurred in the past in John's lifetime. And then the scene shifts dramatically here in chapter 4. And through the rest of our study of Revelation, we're looking at these events that are yet to come. The church raptured. The Great Tribulation. Millennial Kingdom. I've shared with you this timeline before. That in Revelation 1 through 3, it's the church on earth. Then 
the rapture happens, which you can cross-reference with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There the believers were, they were so concerned that they had missed the return of the Lord. And so Paul wrote to them to encourage them, don't be discouraged, you haven't missed anything. These believers are asleep, Jesus is yet to return. Paul held to a view that he could be part of those who are called up when Jesus returned. He says it, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord. So Paul didn't say there's all of these things that have to happen first and then the Lord will return and that'll probably not include me. He knew and he believed it could happen in his lifetime. So then we see the church in heaven, Revelation 4 to 5, and then we see the seven-year tribulation unfolding here on earth. So there's a major shift that happens right here as we open chapter 4. Then we see the return of Christ, and then the events that begin to unfold is there will be the thousand-year millennial kingdom, and then Christ will reign and rule a final rebellion, and then the eternal state. All of these things, I believe, are yet in the future. Okay, so there's just different perspectives. And so it's important for us to understand if we read Revelation and we simply come away combative or argumentative, and there are certain individuals that are prone to that and driven to that, then we're missing the point, which is why in the first three chapters, we emphasize this was given to seven churches and it was intended in an hour and 20, an hour and 30 minutes to be read so that a church would receive the whole vision of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and not become preoccupied with this seal, this bowl, this beast, but be overwhelmed and in awe and in wonder of the one who reigns over all. It's Jesus. It's his revelation. All right, so keep that in mind, although it will take us time to work through Revelation 4 and 5 and the future chapters. We're going to try it and do it in a way that doesn't get us bogged down and just argumentative, but leads us to wonder, to repentance, and to worship. That's our aim as we engage in this book. Now, I'm making a lot of that timeline, and we, we looked at this when we were in chapter 1, verse 19, where uh, the, this is what is commanded to John, write therefore the things, and here's where I'm pulling this timeline from, and where others who are futurists, the things, John, that you have seen, okay? That's a past tense. Those that are, that's a present tense. You're going to see things. Right now, there's seven churches, and you know these churches. And here's what's really going on right now in those churches. Chapter 4, those that are to take place after this, the future events. The events that John was about to see here, they were certain. They were guaranteed to take place. So we see an outline of John's vision here. We also see an open door. John says, and behold, check this out. Whoa, an open door, a, a door standing open in heaven. Now, when I traveled with the uh, music group, the Ginger and I, that's where we met. She won my heart, stole me, chased me down, and uh, loved me, you know. We, were at, uh, we would stay in people's homes. And uh, one guy in the group, he's a, he's a big guy, funny guy, Dave. We went and we, we stayed at a family's home in Georgia. Never forget this guy. So we got dropped off or whatever. We came, we knocked on the door, 
And here comes the Georgia, everything was Georgia Bulldogs. Everything about this house is Georgia Bulldogs. And this guy opened the door. He's just a big old guy. He opened up that door. He had tobacco just shoved down in his. He said, come on in. He looked at Dave. He said, come on in, biggin. And he just welcomed that door. And he just like, come on in. And like I said, everything. And we knew we're welcome in here. And Dave was like, oh, I'm going to like this house. You know, and we just came up. We had a great time of fellowship. But I'll never forget that opening of the door. Come on biggin, you know, and he just welcomed us in. Like, we were long-time lost friends. Come in, biggin. A door is standing open in heaven. This is wide open, that he is going to receive a vision to deliver this detail. Tim Chester says it this way. We can step through and see a reality in a new light. Reality in a new light. But this perspective changes everything. We can't live in the same way once we've stepped through the open door of heaven. So maybe you're living life right now like you're king and you're in charge and this is what I'm going to do today and this is what I'm going to do tomorrow and this is how I'm going here, going there. I'll retire here and I'll do all of these things. And you were unaware of there is a higher throne than yours. And maybe there are people serving in powerful positions around this planet and they are operating like they are the be-all, end-all. And they make decisions. And they have the codes to this. And they have the access to all of these places. But there's a higher throne. And after you walk through Revelation 4 and 5, you can't ever exist without realizing there is a higher throne that I've been told about. And you will see this with your own eyes one day, and so will I. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw this throne. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And how far did Isaiah get with his vision? Hey, tell me about the wedding you went to. Yeah. Well, the bride's train of her dress. That's all I saw. It just filled up the whole place. I didn't even see the bride. That's what he says. The train of his robe. I remember watching Princess Diana get married, and I remember that train of her wedding dress. It's like half the church. Majesty, beauty, royalty. And Isaiah saying his... All I can get for your, your description is the train of his robe filled the temple. And how do you respond? Woe is me. I'm dead. I'm a dead man. Ezekiel, he described his vision of heaven's throne room. Ezekiel 1.26. And above the expanse over their heads, there was a, the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. Like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. 
And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. You catching a theme here? Trying to describe the indescribable, as it were, had the likeness. Have you ever seen glowing metal in a furnace? It's hot and it's just mesmerizing. Where I grew up, Kenosha Brass. We did a tour of this plant. And it would start out, it looked like a parking bumper, and it was brass. And we walked through the whole plant, and it ended up as a key in my pocket. Here's a little clip out. And we watched that bronze just get warmed, heated, glowing, and then the guys handling it, putting it in this press, that press, this fire, that fire, little by little, and stamping it out. And then you walk out with a souvenir. Here's the key that came out of that. Like, whoa good thing it cooled down. <laughs> Put that in your pocket. Your pocket's gone. Everything else with it. Daniel, he sees a vision and it leaves him anxious. It leaves him alarmed. And he says, I had all the color left me. Daniel 7, verse 9, and as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. And, and there are people who say, when I see him, I have an issue with him. I'm going to, I have, I have something to say to him. Do you know what he's done to me? Where was he when this? And where was he when that? This is the scene described. And then we move to the New Testament. And there's Stephen, one of those first men chosen to serve as deacons that we looked at last Sunday. And when he is preaching, and then they fall on him with anger, and they stone him to death. And what is unveiled before him is that as he is there laying down and he looks up and a window is open in heaven and who is he seeing christ standing to welcome him home the apostle paul in second corinthians chapter 12 he describes and he says it in such a way that you're saying who's he talking about well, he's talking about himself, that he was caught up in a vision to the third heaven. What is he talking about there? Well, you have the atmosphere that we can live in and breathe in. You have outer space. You can't live on your own with your own lungs there. And then the third heaven is where God is. And he said, that vision is sealed up. I can't tell you what I saw. I can't describe what I saw. It goes beyond words. Sealed up. Jesus is the one 
as the Son of Man and Son of God who alone gives access into the throne room of heaven. And doesn't this sound familiar to what we just studied in the churches, the Philadelphia? When he opens a door, who can shut it? No one. When he shuts a door, who can open it? No one. And John said, he opened the door of heaven to me. John was invited, not because, well, I am the apostle after all, not because he was worthy, but because he was graciously chosen by God to be a messenger of this awesome vision. So we see an outline, we see an open door, and then we hear a familiar voice. And John says, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's back in chapter 1, verse 10, saying, come up here. This is shocking. This is with authority. This, this is volume here. Come up here. John heard this voice three years in ministry with Jesus. He heard that voice over and over and over again. He heard that voice in so many situations. He was there on the Mount of transfiguration when Jesus' humanity was pulled back and he was able to behold a transfigured. This is who he really is. The Christ, the anointed one, the son of God and son of man. And he hears this voice, come up here. That's probably not a veiled reference to the rapture of the church. It's simply an invitation for John, come up immediately. Get here now, right now. You're going to see all of these events, and right now you're looking at the events as we are often. We're looking at it from this perspective. What is God doing in my life? And what are these events in the world? And what are these events? And Jesus says to John, come up here. Have you ever been, maybe you're hunting or you're somewhere, you're, you're surveying something and you're looking at it from ground level and then someone says, or you see a higher perspective and you get a higher perspective and then you look down and you say, oh, that's where I was. Oh, that's what's going on. Oh, there it is right there. So John is brought up with all of these events that are unfolding in the churches, the seven churches, and then this announcement comes, come up here. I want you, John, to have a perspective that's heaven's perspective on all of these events that are happening and will happen. So we see the unfolding events. That's important in this. He's welcomed into this. He's invited into this. I will show you what must take place after this. This vision comes with the highest authority comes from Jesus in heaven. This vision comes with absolute certainty. They must take place. Allow that to govern your heart, your mind, as you, as I, as we go through events day to day, realize that God is sovereign over everything, absolutely everything, not just the good things, and things happen well. Oh, thank the Lord. That was wonderful. But he is sovereign when things go wrong. And he allows suffering. And he allows persecution. And he allows us to be tried and tested. Why? We don't always have the answer to that. But we have to remember the who. 
And if he never, never does another thing for me, he is all I ever need. Do you have God? That's the question. So as we go through job loss, sickness, all kinds of trouble, trials, our family members, do we have Christ? If we have a healthy life, a prosperous life, all we ever need here and now, and we don't have Christ, what do we by Scripture's standards have? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing that will last. So John, here he, he's given a scene of wonder. There's absolute certainty here. These events that are coming. Here's not just the voice of welcome, but a scene of wonder. This is beyond explanation. John was at once, that is immediately in the Spirit. We saw this already back in chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now he's at once, he's in the Spirit, and thereby he's enabled to witness the coming events from God's perspective, from heaven's point of view. I wonder if we're honest, how much do we really want to see our lives from heaven's point of view? How would this change our schedules if we look at things from heaven's perspective and instead of from our perspective? In this scene of wonder, John beholds a throne. We see this in verse 2. This throne is a higher throne. It's the center of heaven and of everything else. It's a throne. This throne is real. Now, John is not preoccupied with a piece of furniture. Okay? It's not about, that's why you heard in some of the Old Testament descriptions about a throne where it appeared to be like a throne because it's not all about the throne and what exactly did the throne look like. The throne is relatively unimportant. It's the one who's on the throne. So he's describing this throne. This throne is real. God is really sovereign. God really has all authority. This imagery that we see here in Revelation 4 and then again in Revelation 5, it supersedes any human reign or kingdom. Kings and kingdoms come and go. They rise and fall. But this kingdom, this throne that John is viewing here, this one remains. Seven churches of Revelation, they needed this reality check as they were facing all of the temptation, all the dif difficulty that they were walking through in their communities, some being persecuted, some weren't being persecuted because they were right at home, they were functioning like everybody else that didn't know Christ. They needed this perspective. We need this perspective. So often, we fool ourselves into imagining that we are kings building our own little kingdoms. But we need to see this throne. Our eyes need to be lifted up to the highest reality that is. This throne is real and this throne is set. This throne is established. This is the idea of reclining. This isn't barely sitting. This is at home residing, comfortable there. 
didn't have to have any learning to be there. No prep, no this is the throne of God in heaven. Psalm 103:19 says, "The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over how much? All." We have to preach that to our own hearts as we suffer, as we go through difficulties, that he reigns over all. It's established, it's set. And so John sees a throne and he sees one seated on the throne. God is on the throne. He's seated. There's no hint of worry, anxiety, frustration. God is not frustrated. This is, this is helpful to us. God is God. He is seated. That's important. You can fill that in the blank. He's seated. He's resting. He's there, not because he's tired, like you and I are tired, like can we sit down yet? God is seated, it's his. He fills it up. God is God and we are not. He's absolutely sovereign and he rules over all. Now I have a question for you. Do you find that comforting or do you find that convicting and even frustrating that someone else is in charge and not you. How much do we function like this where we do try to control everything, which is different than being a good steward of what is entrusted to us. But by trying to control everything, he is the one beyond description. John gives the most detailed description that we have of God in the Bible, and it leaves our minds and imaginations short-circuited. He says there's an appearance of jasper or ruby, a clear and brilliant stone in the first century. It may have resembled a diamond, just, just beaming with light and beauty. And carnelian, also known as a ruby, there's a red shade to it, great beauty, brilliance, color, majesty. So now you have all of these colors, all of this radiance, all of this brilliance interacting. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 13, and he says, with this kind of a backdrop, okay, imagine being installed you know, into ministry, and this is the backdrop to what you're being installed into. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you feel the weight and pressure that Paul is putting on Timothy here? God, who alone has immortality. Now look at this description right here. Who dwells in unapproachable light. That's where he is. It's his space. Unapproachable light. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You hear what he's doing with Timothy? And he, and he called you, son. He called you to serve him. This is your ultimate sovereign. 
serve him in such a way. There's one seated on the throne, and then we move, and all these prepositions are going on throughout this passage. What about what's going on around the throne? There's magnificent splendor. It's, it's surrounding, it's wrapping around the throne of heaven. He describes a rainbow with more colors and intensity and the appearance of this shade of emerald green. It's a hue that encircles the throne and it's all contributing to this magister, majesty and wonder and glory. And he's seeing this. And then he moves out from there and he sees 24 thrones of 24 elders. These are lesser thrones that encircle the supreme throne far above all other kings, thrones, and kingdoms, nations, and peoples. In the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 24, verse 4, David, he ordered the priests into 24 divisions. There's a lot of speculation about who are these 24 elders on these 24 thrones. I mean, you can spend the rest of your life working through who are these. Wouldn't it have been nice if John would have said, uh, Lord, question, who are the 24 elders? Oh, those are, and we could just fill that in. But the Lord withheld that. It, it, so therefore, it's not most essential that we understand who are the 24 elders. But they're there. Some see them as powerful angels who've been given large responsibilities, uh, would not agree with that. But I would suggest that the 24 elders represent the gathered saints. It's a, complete, a completion there, Old Testament and New. Many divisions of 12 Old Testament and New, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. New Testament believers gathered raptured into the presence of the Lord. They're joined with Old Testament believers. What do we know about these, these 24? They're elders. Never are angels referred to as elders. They're clothed in white, white robes given to them. White robes are not given to angels. Angels cannot be redeemed. They're holy created. They're either holy angels or fallen angels. Holy angels, they do the will of the, the Lord. Fallen angels are demons and they are ordered in hierarchy and they do the will of Satan. They're wearing golden crowns. That word is Stephanus. Those are the, they're on their head. There's, there's overcoming. There's victory signified in those. They cast those crowns before the throne. Angels do not overcome. Angels are not forgiven. Angels are not redeemed. They have not overcome through the blood of the Lamb. The Bible tells us elsewhere they look in on what God is doing in redeeming a people and making a bride for himself, and they look with awe and wonder at God's work of redemption unfolding in the, life, in the lives of human beings, the same human beings that crucified the Son of God, and they watched it all, and they knew it all. And they couldn't believe that that was being allowed to happen to the Lord of glory. That's why they were waiting for one whisper of, I'm done, check please, I'm out, and it never came. Instead, Father, forgive me, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what came. Forgiveness for you and for me. What about from the throne in verse 5? It just keeps intensifying, the scene does. It's mesmerizing. It's also terrifying. It's far above the splendor of any earthly king's throne. 
John describes flashes of lightning. This is the supreme lightning storm. This is, this, these aren't drones here. <laughs> this isn't man-made. This gives us imagery of when Israel was there at Mount Sinai and Moses was up and there he was receiving the law of God and there he was in the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai and they looked up and it was the, the, the mountain was on fire and lightning and they were afraid. And, and remember, the Lord told Moses, go tell the people, don't come up. Go tell the people again, don't come up and don't touch the mountain. Oh, I told them that already. Go tell them, Moses. If they touch the mountain or any other animals touch the mountain, they'll die. They can't handle me, let alone, they can't handle this mountain. Tell them to stay back. John is un seeing this all unfold. Doesn't, shouldn't that make us feel a little small, a little insignificant? That, that this is his throne? Just as lightning causes us to realize our smallness, did you see just this last week? The thunder uh, strike, lightning strike in the middle of a snowstorm. I think Jim Cantori was on live and it was lightning. It's overwhelming. You run from the base of trees and anything tall. And he's seeing this all coming out of the throne, from the throne. This description should lead us to genuine wonder and worship of this creating, sustaining, and saving God. So he sees all of this lightning and then there's rumbling and peals of thunder. It's this sound of authority and just overwhelming. You know what it is when you hear, you see the lightning and then you wait and you count seconds and then you feel the lightning. And then there's the times when lightning strikes and there's no counting, right? Because this is lightning and strike, and you realize, whoo, that was close. I need to find shelter right now. Are you catching the scene that John is describing? This is awe-inspiring. Then he moves to what is before and around the throne. More context. He's widening out the lens. He's, he's dropping back. He's describing what's going on before the throne. What do we see around the throne? There's seven torches that were burning. And we see it told for us. Well, what are the seven torches? It says it right in the text. The seven spirits of God. We looked at that already. The seven spirits. That's the perfection. That the Holy Spirit is perfect in power. In His presence. In power. There's a sea of glass. John says it's like crystal. Now in heaven, there's no more sea. We're going to see that as we come to the end of Revelation in our study. So he's describing something that is not this wild, foaming, raging ocean or sea, but it's just placid. And it's beautiful. It's, it's where we get streets of gold, but not really gold. It's, it's translucent. Exodus 24 Verses 9 and 10, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are his sons. And 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. They, they saw a glimpse of this 
this pavement of just a sea of glass. Ezekiel 1.22, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. It's just overwhelming. There's no way to fully describe the scene that they are taking in, that John is seeing, that Ezekiel saw, that Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 elders, they saw a glimpse of the road, of just the expanse of the sea. The normal understanding of the sea was turmoil, a mystery. It's in mythology it's throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation that the voice, that the, that the Lord went out over the waters and there's this mystery and there's this overwhelming. And if you've ever been out on the water and you've had a storm come in, you've felt the panic that this could go south and depending on what is around you, nearby, under you, how deep is it? How, what's the temperature of the water? Can I survive? There's always the reality of I won't make it on my own. And this has been throughout all of human history since the fall, this sin, this, this sea that is just constantly foaming and stirring up of all the trials and all the trouble that we've experienced. Legends and stories of monsters at, the, in, at sea and terror and shipwrecks and ghosts and legends. It's all out there. They're without number of what sailors would talk about out on the sea. The disciples experienced a storm that caused these, these expert lifetime career fishermen to say, we're going to die. And there's Jesus, and he is sleeping. Luke chapter 8, 22, one day. Wasn't the only time this happened. He got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Now, when Jesus says, we're going to the other side of the lake, what's going to happen? Oh, he didn't know about the storm, somebody said. So they set out. Verse 23, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. There we see his humanity. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm, like a sea of glass, still. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Now they're not afraid of the storm anymore. The storm is way far back in their memory. Now they're in the same boat as the one who commands winds and waves and raging winds, all of it to just stop and it listens to him. Who is this? Saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and water and they obey him. Well, who submits to that? The Creator. That was who was in their boat with them. This is an absolute dominance over the sea. This is what we see in Revelation. We begin to see the, the reverse of the curse. It's beginning to unfold, and this sea that is in the view of the throne is as still as glass. It's like crystal. 
Jesus displayed that kind of authority multiple times. We'll see throughout Revelation, the storms and all of this going on, all of the judgment, arriving at the culmination of God's story, the redemption of a new heaven and new earth. In Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was gone. No more. What comprises a lot of our lives and our concern of sickness and death and trials. And John is looking and he will see as we come in further in this study, gone, dealt with, done by the one who is on the throne that we see in Revelation 5. Now he describes these four living creatures. And, he, and he's using as much comparison as he can describing, trying to give a, an, a, a representation of what is he seeing here, these four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. They see it all. Closely associated are these four living creatures with the 24 elders. We'll see them interacting. This is written to the church in the first century. They were used to seeing leaders and rulers, and all the symbolism. They were used to seeing Romans come through under the banner of the eagle. Okay, so this is familiar to them. And John is saying, I know churches, you're seeing all of this human authority and pressure and wrong being done, but come with me and look at this, look at this emperor and look at his mighty army from the perspective of heaven. Now, now look back on that. Look at what you're going through with your president and the elections and economy and all these things. But are we looking from heaven's perspective or are we trying to put heaven into our perspective and make it fit and make it work? It won't. Nations and rulers often associate themselves with powerful animals. I remember a lot of focus when I was growing up, USSR, the bear, you know, that was the bear. The eagle, USA, USA. The eagle, the mighty eagle. Okay, it's not strange. But all these things, they'll eventually, with human nations, fall. Ezekiel describes these mysterious creatures with these wheels that moved about constantly. There's this, there's this movement, there's this activity that's going on around the throne, those 24 elders and the thrones and the sea of glass. And then he describes these. He said, one is like a lion. Well, what's the lion? That's the king, you know, the king of the jungle, the lion. The God is perfect in his authority. There's one like an ox. What's an ox? A strong animal for service. Just steady as you go, mighty as could be, that God is perfect in all of his activity. One is like a man. What is man that you are mindful of him, Psalm 8 says. Man is God's pinnacle of his creation. This is very good when he created man. God is perfect in his majesty. Then there's one like an eagle in flight, soaring, often represented deity in different nations that God is perfect in his deity. So each of these creatures, these four creatures alive and this activity moving around the throne, the glory of these creatures is not in their own splendor, but it's in the content of their message. And we will see that, God willing, 
next Sunday when we see the response, which is a symphony of worship. And we will see, should the Lord gather us again next Sunday, and we will focus in on their unbridled adoration. It's the only right response. Every reader should be left in awe and wonder at this vision that we have received from Jesus through John as apostle. There's only one right response. If you go to the Grand Canyon, it's not to get your selfie. It's the Grand Canyon. You don't leave the Grand Canyon saying, man, I, I dug a ditch once. Like, what's wrong with you? Are you sure you saw the Grand Canyon? And not somebody's drainage ditch in their backyard? This should leave us in awe and wonder. And I will close with this, D.O. Moody. He once, once preached a sermon in his mind. He did what I just said to you, that next Sunday, should the Lord gather us again, we'll, we'll finish Re Revelation 4. And he said to his hearers that gathered in, in the church in Chicago, he said, I have shared with you the gospel. And he said, next Sunday, next Sunday, in his mind, in his communication, I want you to give your life to Christ next Sunday. I want you to think about this message this week. And do you know what happened that week? Chicago fire. There were people alive under the sound of his voice in that message on that Sunday, on that Lord's Day, that were in eternity the next Sunday. And he said, he made a decision. I'll never do that again. I won't take for granted that I have one more week or my hearers have one more. It changed him. And so as we, as we finish here for this week, I would say the same thing to you. Don't wait until next week. Have you responded and worshiped to this God who is good and glorious and faithful and sent his one and only son to forgive you of all your sin and adopt and redeem you into his family? Have you responded in worship to Jesus? Because he and he alone is worthy of everything your entire life and existence and being. He's worthy. He's worthy. Let's stand together. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you that you, through John, your servant, you gave to us, Lord, a vision, the vision that we need. It's inspired by you, Lord, so it's exactly what we need to be able to see and have right perspective over our lives, our time here on this earth, and over all time, and over all peoples. And so, Father, I pray that as this message even goes out today, if there is anyone who is living like they are king, that you would stop their mouths and that you would stop them in their ways and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus and confess that I am not worthy. I'm a sinner, but he is worthy and I yield to him my life. Oh, Father, may that happen today. And for those of you, those who are here, Lord, that have confessed Jesus as Lord, may we see this is our God. This is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And you are good and you are glorious and you are worthy of our lives, our praise, our trust. You are worthy of everything, Lord. So help us to submit our lives, all of our lives, our children, our jobs, our entertainment, everything. 
may it be submitted to you, Lord, for you are worthy, worthy, worthy are you, O Lord. And we ask all of this in the powerful name, the saving name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.